All right, good morning, everyone. We are in Exodus chapter 3. Familiar passage, uh, certainly the first, uh, well, I, probably the whole chapter is going to be familiar, and that'll be that way with much of Exodus. And uh, so it's always with a certain, uh, I guess, more than usual amount of humility whenever you tackle a, a, a famous passage because um, no doubt uh, thousands and, and thousands of people have done a better job, but we'll, uh, we'll see what God has for us today. Verse 1, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. We know that Moses, for quite a long time, had been a shepherd. Uh, phase two of his life, phase one, having been brought up in the house of Pharaoh, uh, he... Uh, Basically, was running from the law there for a while, uh, ran away from the law, ran t out of Egypt into this uh, region of Midian. We know the story about how he met up with uh, Jethro and ultimately uh, married one of his daughters. And now he's shepherding, and he his uh, you know as as it goes, you you follow where the where the good grazing is and. Uh, in this area, there are lots of valleys uh, that have water and good grazing, and uh, that's that's what's happened. He's meandered and now has come to uh, some places are called the backside of the wilderness, the the west side of the wilderness. Um, apparently, you know, I, I think just from a map standpoint, we tend to orient ourselves uh, to the north. Um, uh, apparently, uh, the people in the in the Near East there orient, oriented them, oriented themselves to the east. Uh, so, if you're facing east, then your backside is to the west, and that's where that's where Moses found himself. And it says he came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and and we understand that Horeb, uh, also called Mount Sinai. So. Uh, Sinai, the mountain of God, um, Horeb. Some people have said Horeb was the mountain range and Sinai was the particular mountain of God. Uh, but the, the big point is uh, we're talking about uh, the area of Mount Sinai that will take on uh, larger and larger significance as we go through. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of fire, I'm sorry, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Now, we have a description here. We have writing, obviously, um, uh, a description of what happened in the past. Um, it probably wasn't exactly like this, right? It wasn't, you know, if you picture an actor saying these words, it doesn't seem to really flow. I will turn aside and see this great sight. No, it probably wasn't like that. It was probably something like, what the heck? <coughs> There's something on fire here, and I'm going to go check this out. Anyway, that's my paraphrase, of course. I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. 
When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. In other words, God was trying to get his attention, right? God has this bush burning, but was not burning up. God was trying to get his attention. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I'm sure the, the great pastors and preachers of the world um, would just stop there and go for an hour. The place where you're standing is holy ground. Goes on to say, and we'll read these verses, but at the end of verse 6 it says, And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Uh, this, this meaning of taking off your sandals, they say uh, the Western view would, would be, uh, or to think about this would be to, to take off your shoes out of respect for the deity, out of respect for and reverence, you might say. <clears throat> Apparently the, the Near Eastern understanding is um, your feet are filthy and it's a sign of your own contamination of your own um, dirtiness your own uncleanness is that's why you take off your shoes a little bit different take between those two views do not come near take your sandals off your feet for the place you are standing is holy ground and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. God identified himself as the God. Moses had heard the stories, right? He knew of the promises of God to Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, the very reason that they wound up in Egypt to begin with, that was the God he was talking about. His father, remember, was a Levite. Um, he knew this is the same God. There was no doubt about who was giving him this message. So Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. I had not really thought about this point uh, until, uh, until doing the prep for this lesson. As we know, we know where this story is going. We know that God is going to talk about um, his care and his plan for the people who are still in Egypt. And we all we all know that this is how God talks about redemption and getting his people out of the predicament that they're in. I had not really thought about the point that it was God who led them into slavery. 
So what do you think about that? The same God who says, I'm going to get my people out, was the same God who put his people in. All right, we'll come back to that, John. What were you saying? <laughs> Some of that is different circumstances, Ken? If I remember right, I think there was also that in the scripture there that they were going to be sojourning in Egypt for 400 years because the sins of the Canaanites had not gotten to their full rightness for God's past judgment on the Canaanites. Okay, so it was prophesied. John, what were you saying? Okay. And the things that we, you know, it's just like there's burning bushes that we encounter ourselves, but that we respond like we should. And I think this is what, you know, we have to take the initiative when we see the burning bush. Why? What? What does he want us to do? Okay. But he sees the bigger picture. I mean, we don't see it as we're going through it, but he knows what he's trying to accomplish well past us. Yeah, so I thought about actually all three of those things. Um, and I think all of us are acknowledging that, you know, God is sovereign and, and there's a lot we don't know. Um, this concept that sometimes we, we um, need to be softened up a little bit before we respond. Um, I, I certainly think there are uh, examples of that, uh, John. Uh, as I as I tried to land on one of these things, I um, I kind of landed, I guess, where Pat was. Um, and different people have different views on this, but one commentator said uh, or explained it this. It said. When God led those 70 people into Egypt, he was leading them out of famine. We know that to be true. He was leading them to probably the only place on earth that they could have not only survived, but thrived in this land of Goshen, right? It was there that they multiplied under the protection, you might say, of one of the if not the greatest, one of the greatest world powers at the time, they were in essence totally protected from any war. The area that they were pulled away from, what will one day be called the promised land, as you'll see in our text, was an area that was constantly under battle, constantly being contended for by a number of different groups and had they stayed there those 400 years they would have just been in the middle of a brawl that had no clear winner with attrition on all sides so God did lead them into slavery but he led them away from 
a far worse place and he led them to probably the literally the only place on earth that they could have survived and thrived like nobody else but but yet but yet they were in when it all was said and done they had become slaves so it is interesting to think about um, that and I'm sure we might come up with a lot of applications yeah So it prepared them. I, if they, for those that didn't hear, if he, if they had been living it up and living great, they wouldn't have wanted to go. And we, we know the story. We know that there were echoes of that very thought <laughs> that made them ambivalent at times. But, but yeah, that those last years of slavery prepared them for what God had next for them, right? For the better thing. Perfect segue into verse 7. <laughs> then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the land, I'm sorry, out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And here is our description. They couldn't even describe it as one solid territory. It was a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. One, two, three, four, five, six. Is that right? Six different places or peoples that had been warring over this territory. Uh, it's probably just as well that they weren't in the middle of it. Verse 9. And now behold the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. One of the commentaries I read said this cry of the people is the, the word there is basically the word for scream. I've heard the screams of my people. This was an intense appeal for help. Verse 10. He says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? When Moses says, who am I, what is he saying? That he's not big and worthy of the task the good Lord sees that he can do. So, all right, so he might be saying, I don't think I'm worthy of this. What else? No, I'm comfortable where I am. I'm fine, thank you. <laughs> this sounds like a lot. God, this really sounds like a lot. 
Um, I'm not so sure about this. What else? I think the excuse that we use a lot of time, I'm not capable. I don't know. I, I can't do that. Yeah, you know, uh, surely. Surely there might be somebody else. I don't think I've got the game for this guy. <laughs> Who am I? Uh, did God go on to um, comfort Moses with how wonderful his qualifications were and how vast his experiences were and kind of stoke up his his uh, resolve not exactly right he did say verse 12 but I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt you shall serve God on this mountain So, yes, Karen, I agree. Moses already has doubts, and he jumps right into it. Verse 13, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? So Moses is already playing this out in his head. Okay, so let me get this straight. I'm going to go down to Pharaoh and bring your people out. I just don't really see how this is going to work. So he says, his first concern is, why in the world are all these people going to follow me? Right? What, what am I going to say to them to convince them to follow me? He hasn't even got to the part about is Pharaoh really going to go along with this? But are the people even going to go along with this? If they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Apparently, in that culture, the person who did the naming was the person who had the authority. So in essence, God is naming himself. This is basically a statement of authority. I am who I am. I am the one of such authority I can name myself 
I am God. I've already told you I was God. I do my own naming. I am who I am. It's a play on the word to be. Some people say it means uh, I will be who I will be. I create what I create. All of those are wrapped up in that. Then he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And he also said, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord has sent me to you. This word Lord, of course, um, sometimes you see written with just the four letters without consonants that the words that we kind of pronounce Yahweh, we kind of put our consonants in there. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Uh, he describes himself and um, if you think back to Moses' question in verse 11, who am I? He still really hasn't gotten around to that. He basically says, who you are is not really the point. Who I am is the point. Of course, they're not really going to do anything on your authority. I am is the authority under which they will be rescued. Say to these people, I am has sent me to you. We know that subsequent to this, as, as things progress through Old Testament times and into the New Testament, we know that by that time, the tradition was among the Jews that they wouldn't even say this name, right? You remember, this is what got Jesus into really big trouble, right? Because he said at one point under the questioning, say, who are you? And he said, basically, I am and all. Remember the chief priests and, uh, and the, uh, the, uh, the council there, the Sanhedrin, uh, they just went bonkers, right? Ripping their clothes, going all hypocritical on them. Um, I am was by that time uh, just totally revered. It's interesting, and I, I, I didn't have time to really dig into this much, but, you know, our, our uh, sometimes friends and family members who have gotten sucked into the Jehovah's Witnesses cult, basically, um, get all up into this Jehovah thing, which I learned was a word that didn't even exist until a few hundred years ago. Apparently, what happened was um, the word Yahweh, that are the four letters, uh, by the time printing and everything came around and they were trying to figure out how to say it, by Jesus day they had every time they would come across that word in Hebrew they would substitute the word Adonai instead of saying whatever those four letters 
however they would be pronounced. So they would say Adonai and Sid. So to convey that notion, they would take the four um, vowels that were in Adonai and they would put them after the Y and the W and so forth to the H. And so you would get this strange word that would be like Yowawa or something like that. Anyway, by the time it gets to Germany, they they take the W and turn it to a V and it comes out Jehovah. And so it's just kind of crazy that they get all bent out of shape about this one particular um, relatively new invention of a name that has crazy origins. Um, kind of a little rabbit there, but um, I thought it was interesting anyway. Verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, this flowing with milk and honey, I thought, has always been interesting. I've never been to Israel. I know many of you have. It's not what I picture as like lush green. But apparently, compared to where Moses was, it would have been that. Because he was basically in the desert looking for these pockets of green as he traveled his flock. So compared to where he was, it would certainly have been lush. And um, when it says flowing with milk and honey, I, I found two differences of opinion on this honey thing. Um, does everybody like honey? I like honey. Um, that apparently it's known for naturally having a lot of bees and having a lot of honey. Yeah, that was one very obvious view. The other people said that um, honey was like the syrup that they got from um, the dates uh, and that that's what they call honey. Uh, okay. Uh, and then this milk thing, apparently uh, what you mostly got milk from back then was goats. So basically it was saying this is a great land for goats uh, and honey. Um, and what? I'm assuming it was good for sheep, but do you milk sheep that much? You do? I guess you do. I don't. I, I, I did have a boyfriend friend that, uh, that they, uh, they, they milk their goats, and we had goat's milk ice cream a few times at his house. Um, not something I'd rush back for, by the way. Uh, in any event, Verse 18, and they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Uh, this three days journey into the wilderness, again, remember we're talking about a couple million people and this three days journey apparently was a, a phrase. There was today, there was tomorrow, and then there was after that. That was the three days. 
and this after that was an indefinite period of time. So apparently back then, if you said, I'm going to be gone for three days, it could mean three days, it could mean three months, three years. It was kind of like, and then after that, we'll see. So that's basically what their ask was going to be. Um, verse 19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. By the way, one thing, just a comment on back in verse 18, uh, why was, the, what was the pretense for them going? That they may sacrifice the Lord our God. All this sacrificing would have been um, somewhat of an abomination to the people there in Egypt, but that is ultimately really what God wanted, right? God wanted them to come out of Egypt so that they could have this land and so that they could worship him. And so that part was, in fact, true. Uh, the king of Egypt won't like this. He'll let, he won't go unless compelled. Verse 20, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. In other words, it's going to take a bit. Verse 21, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. God gave Moses a pretty good account of what was going to happen. Now, he kind of glossed over a lot of the plague thing there. But the point was, yes, I'm going to have to exert some pressure, but then after that, it's going to go okay. And not only that, um, you're not going to leave empty-handed. So this was the, the revelation of God to Moses, the appearance in the bush, getting his attention. And then we have this call of Moses to do a lot of things. Um, I don't know if any of you, and I will not be offended if none of you, um, ever go to like click on the study notes uh, when things are posted on the podcast. But uh, one thing I am going to post, uh, if, you, if you click on it, uh, part of it goes through and compares Moses' call from God with a lot of other people's call from God. And it talks about the the comparisons and the similarities. Specifically, he talks about Joshua, Gideon, Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And it's really interesting as you go through and you read the comparisons, one of the interesting things is that every person that was called was doing something. Now, what was Moses doing when he was called? He was sheep. He was shepherding. He was sheeping. Uh, he was shepherding. Every one of these people was doing their thing. They were doing their work, often a menial thing. They were occupied, but they were busy. They weren't lazy. They were, they were just doing their thing. Some had been doing their thing for a while, just being faithful, just doing the task that was before them. It's interesting. 
Um, and some of the narratives, um, as one commentator put, it's kind of like they go out of their way to talk about just how mundane their life was before all this. So, some comparisons about the call. I think it's interesting, as I went through some of these key verses, God reveals a lot about himself in this passage. And I pulled out a few statements. First of all, God says, I've heard you. I've heard you. That's verse 7. I've seen the affliction. I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings. Can we generalize that? I think we can. God's saying, I respond to the prayers and the needs of my people. I hear you. I don't think it's any accident that, they use, that the, it includes the word suffering. When you're in a bind, do you feel like you're suffering? Yes, it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's more than uncomfortable. Sometimes it's very painful, emotionally, physically. Uh, there is suffering involved. God says, I respond to that. He says, I've heard you. In verse 10, he says, come. The cornerstone of Dr. Blackaby's ministry of experiencing God is the fact that he says to Moses, come and join me in, the, in what I need to do. It's not your own, your own. Go do your thing, and you're just alone. He says, no, come. I'm inviting you to go beyond what you're currently doing, shepherding. Nothing against shepherding, but I'm going to call you beyond that to join in the work that I have planned for you. Now, do you think that the actual shepherding and goading probably hundreds of sheep, somewhat stupid, to where they need to be, do you think there were any parallels with the job that he's going to be doing before long about goading a bunch of somewhat stupid people to where they need to go? Yeah, probably there are some parallels there. Anyway, he says, come, I'm inviting you to go beyond what you're doing to the next thing. Then he says in verse 12, but I will be with you he goes on to say, you, will sh you shall serve God on this mountain. There's a now, and there's going to be a later with me. He's basically, I think, saying, I am with you in this task. And he's calling Moses to an ongoing relationship. This is not just a one-time thing. This isn't the last time you're going to hear from me. I'm with you in this task that you have to do. Verse 14, he says, I am who I am. I think we could generalize that and say, God is saying, I am powerful enough to do what I say I'm going to do. This is not a problem for me. I've got this. And then the last statement I pulled out, verse 17, God says, I promise. He says, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. So not only am I powerful enough to do what I say I'm going to do, I am committed enough to do what I say I'm going to do. 
God says a lot about himself in this passage. Gosh. We need to quit. Uh, God's call to Moses and what he has for them is going to have a parallel later when God calls the people, gives them a vision, offers them covenant. So you'll see some parallels there uh, a few weeks or <laughs> months, I don't know, from now. Um, but God says a lot about who he is. There are some things that are probably not normative for the Christian. Should we expect every call to be God audibly talking to us out of some supernatural phenomenon? No. That's not normally the way he leads everyday Christians. But that doesn't mean he has things for us to do um, and that he's not uh, with us as we do them. I guess we better quit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that in these earliest days, as, as you were revealing yourself to Moses, that you were moving him, and today you can move us from the focus being on who we are to who you are. Help us to cling to that when we encounter our own doubts about what we need to be doing and our own power about whether we can do them and ultimately trust in your sovereignty that you will complete what you started. We thank you for Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.